The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. We are in the middle of a fall series that we're calling Neighborhood Matters. And um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you may remember the way we kicked this series off. Uh, And uh, if you were here for the first time a couple of weeks ago, you may have been completely freaked out. You may not have even come back. Um, But a couple weeks ago, we kicked off this series called Neighborhood Matters by actually meeting here, but not staying here for our worship service, actually going out into the neighborhoods uh, and showing them that we love them by caring for them and serving them in a a variety of ways. We did some painting of some businesses in the South Wedge. We did some winterizing of gardens. We did street cleanup. We did graffiti removal. All of these things uh, to show that we think that God loves the city and that we certainly love the city. And that we think neighborhood matters. And so, it maybe raises the question, why, why neighborhood matters? If we say that neighborhood matters, what are the consequences of that idea? I think in the church, it's pretty common to have, have an idea that goes a little bit like this. And I, I confess to having this idea, uh, even as we were planning this series uh, a month or two ago. The neighborhood matters because we want to bring God to the neighborhood, right? Anybody kind of agree with that statement? Does it maybe tweak you just a little bit the wrong way? The more I thought about it, the more I thought, I'm not sure that's totally accurate, bring God to the neighborhood. Because I think the reason that neighborhood matters is because God is already in the neighborhood. And we see God in the neighborhood, and we see God at work in the neighborhood. And so in those neighborhoods, we see the God we serve. Now, I'm not trying to say that I'm anti-evangelism. I think bringing the gospel to the neighborhoods, bringing the message of Christ and His love to the neighborhoods is something that Christians should be involved in doing. But let's not confuse that with bringing God there as if we, ho- we hold Him right here and He's not going to get down there unless we carry Him on our backs, right? That's not quite the theology that we hold. So this is different from we need to bring God to our neighborhoods. We see God in the neighborhoods because we see people there. And people, whether we like them or not, whether they have money or not, whether they are functioning as high members of society or not, bear the image of God. Genesis 1.27. We'll look actually at that passage a little bit later for a different reason. But these people are made in God's image. And so when we see the people, we see him. We also see Jesus in the neighborhood present because of the incarnation. In fact, our theme verse for this whole series comes from the book of John, and we use the the message translation that says it a little bit less literally, but it says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Speaking of Jesus there. And so when we go into those neighborhoods, guess who we see? The incarnated Jesus and his presence there. 
And I think for a third reason that I'd like to dwell a little bit more on this morning, we see God in the neighborhoods because we see beauty in the neighborhoods. Now, this is truer in some neighborhoods than in others here in Rochester. But in seeing natural beauty that's present in these neighborhoods, we see God. And it's that last point that I want to spend some time on today um, because today's neighborhood that we're focusing on, during this, the rest of this series, we're, we're focusing on a neighborhood or a neighborhood organization every week and talking about how we see God through those places or people. So last week, Jason did, a, did one about Swilberg, which is one of, our, one of Rochester's most diverse neighborhoods, and talked about the diversity that ought to be present even within the church, even though we often fail at that. This week, the neighborhood that we want to focus on is the Highland Park neighborhood. Why Highland Park? Well, let me ask you, if I mention the Highland Park neighborhood, if I say the words Highland Park to you, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Lilacs, the Lilac Festival, right. Exactly. That's what comes to my mind. Flowers. So this is not going to be a sermon about flowers per se, but um, flowers are going to be part of what I'm talking about. I think it's kind of interesting to, to think about flowers in the context of our faith, what they matter. Did you have a question? Yeah, okay, go ahead. That's right. They're, they're, flowers are a type of plant. Yes. Yes, we can. Flowers and trees. And we're going to talk a lot about flowers and trees. Now, for those of you who are kind of freaked out by, by kids making noise, it's probably not the service for you. <laughs> you, you may want to come to the 5 p.m. service. Uh, but but we, uh, you know, this is a good opportunity to remind all of us that we think that children are people too. You know, that's kind of trite to say. Um, but... You hear kids making noise in here, and uh, we would rather have families stay together and make a little bit of noise, a little bit, than be splintered apart for their entire life of church and have dead silence in here so you can hear all the wonderful, brilliant things I'm going to say, right? So, (laughs) if you get bored, just uh, listen to a kid talking about the picture she's drawing, and you'll be happier. So, Um, So, flowers... In the Bible, now let's talk about this for a minute. What does the Bible have to say about flowers? Well, it turns out not a whole lot. And the times when it does mention flowers, it seems most often to focus on the fact that they don't last very long. You ever bought flowers for somebody or have somebody buy flowers for you and it's very beautiful for a few days and then it starts to wilt and fade and... Stink. (laughs) The Bible talks about that very thing, actually in several places. Here's one of them, Isaiah 40. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is very common in Scripture to see flowers and their um, evanescence, their lack of permanence, contrasted with God's uh, longevity and permanence. Another... um, famous mention of flowers in the Bible, and I actually used this a couple weeks ago in a different sermon, so you may think I'm hurting for material here, but uh, this is Jesus talking about flowers, and he says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, in other words, they don't work, yet I tell you 
Even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. And Solomon's a very famous figure at the time of Jesus as, as being the wealthiest man in history and fancy, fancy, fancy looking fellow, right? And here's Jesus saying, you know, he has nothing on these flowers, which remember, get tossed in the fire. In fact, he goes on to say, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? But I thought if we really want to know why flowers exist, it probably makes sense to go all the way back to the creation stories in Genesis. And yes, I used the plural there because there's more than one creation story in Genesis. So what I'm going to do is read for you both of these passages very, fairly quickly. And then I'm going to actually have you uh, split you into two parts of the room and have you, each part of the room look at one of these passages a little more closely. And then we'll have a, a bit of a discussion about it. Um, But if you want to follow along with your red Bibles, it's very easy to find Genesis 1 in the Bible because it's on page 1. It's the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. So this is um, verses 27 through 31 of chapter 1 of Genesis. So God created humankind in his image. Now, let me pause just briefly here and tell you, because I know some of you are not using the Bibles that we have. You may have your NIV or your KJV or something else, and you may have the word man there. God created man or mankind in his image. It's just as a, this, this translation reflects a shift in the way we use language and the way we talk about people. Uh, the time of the King James Version translation is very common to say man when you meant humanity, when you meant both men and women, just people. Uh, and so the, the word in Hebrew actually here is not gender specific. Uh, and so this translation reflects that. If yours does not, that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm reading from the liberal translation and you're reading from the real one or something like that. It just means that they have a different approach to the use of that, that kind of language. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. See, they're both made in, in God's image. That's the point. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So this is, that's the the creation story from Genesis 1 is where the idea of seven days comes from. Creation story in Genesis 2 is is not specific about how long this takes. Uh, But we're going to read verses 4 through 9. This is on the next page, page 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground. And here it actually is gender specific. It's a different Hebrew word. 
God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Genesis 2 is the creation story where you get the Garden of Eden. So what I'd like you to do is um, this side of the room, so this section and then maybe you guys, I want you to spend about five minutes and look at Genesis 1, 27 through 31. And you can read that silently to yourself a, a bunch of times and kind of meditate on it and let it sink in and see if anything jumps out at you. Uh, and if you're with somebody here today, you can kind of quietly talk about it together if you want. And then this side of the room, so this section and, and you guys, can look at Genesis 2, 4 through 9, and do the same thing. Read it for about five minutes. Read it over a bunch of times. See if anything pops out to you. Um, and remember, we're particularly talking about plants and flowers, okay? So you spend about five minutes doing that. Uh, if you need to have a little conversation with the person you came with, that's cool. Um, but for the most part, I just want you to sort of soak in this scripture and see what comes to mind. And uh, while, that's, while you're doing that, I actually have a slideshow here of a bunch of um, photographs from Highland Park. And I, on our Facebook page, Artisan Church, or facebook.com slash Artisan Church, uh, I posted this week asking for people who had uh, taken pictures of the Lilac Festival to tag them a certain way on Flickr. And I grabbed a bunch of them, and they're going to cycle through. Some of them I took, so you'll see my family up there. But um, those are cycling through while you're studying Genesis, and so you'll have these images in your mind, okay? So I'll call you back in about four or five minutes, and we'll talk some more about these two passages. Okay, so I'd like to ask group number one, who is reading Genesis 1, According to your passage, what is the purpose of plant life? Why did God make plants? For food, okay? Food for whom? Who gets to eat the food, Calder? The birds eat the fruit, food from the trees, sure. Did you have another answer? For oxygen, well, you've gone too scientific. We don't like to mix science with Genesis chapter 1, Calder. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you're absolutely right that the plants give off oxygen. That's true, even though the Bible does not say that explicitly. It's a very interesting uh, hermeneutical lesson for you this morning. <laughs> but according to this passage, who gets to, who gets to eat from these trees and plants? People, yeah, and who else? All the animals, all the creepy crawlies and everything it gets to eat. So, what's that? The food chain, yes. Yeah, also not explicitly mentioned. <laughs> anything else stand out from that passage about the, the concept of plant life and, and how we're supposed to relate to it? Okay. 
I'm going to ask you to hold on for just a second because you're, you're stepping on group two's toes a little bit. <laughs> you are reading something into the text that's not there yet. <laughs> but that's right. I think you're right, Kathy. Let me go on to the second group and, and ask you. Um, sorry she stole your thunder, guys, but <laughs> I'm just teasing you. Um, what, what's the purpose of plant life according to Genesis chapter 2? Is it about food? Not quite. Pleasant to sight and good for food. So the answer is yes, it is about the food, but that's not all it's about. God made them for this other reason, apparently, according to this other creation account. Aesthetics. God's like an exterior, interior designer. Ooh, wow, that's deep. Amen, let's have communion. (laughs) Food for both the body and the soul. It got me thinking, though. Some of this stuff, you know, so because some of these plants are, are both beautiful and functional, you know, right? So an apple tree is pretty, and it provides food, right? So, but leaving those aside, there are some that are just for food, and there are certainly some that are just pretty and have no functional purpose at all except looking good. It's kind of like the Tyra Banks of nature, right? Well, that's true. The animals do eat some of the ones that, that we don't eat. That's, that's true. You eat roses? Oh, the animals will. Okay. <laughs> But what would, what would God be thinking, making something that doesn't actually serve a purpose for us, other than for us to look at? Because the animals that eat the roses probably also don't think it's pretty, so they're not getting both, both, uh, both benefits either. But we get both of these benefits from this stuff. And I, doesn't it seem a little bit reckless to you that the God of the universe would waste his awesome creative power making something just because it was pretty? No. Okay. Why not? So let me ask you. Why do you think God, what was the point? Why why would he make this stuff that that doesn't, you know, serve a functional purpose for us other than just it's pretty? What's the point? It reflects his beauty. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, he created us in his image, you know, with the the tendency apparently to make things because they're beautiful. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah. So simply to add to our enjoyment of life. Very interesting. Now remember, this is Genesis 2, before what happens in Genesis 3, which is the story of the fall and then sin entering the world. And so this is a, a perfect time. Uh, and so what we have now, the beauty that remains, is it's kind of leftovers of that in some ways. Yeah. So teaching us to love beauty the way he does and, and as kind of a stepping stone or an example of beauty that's, that falls short of his own beauty but kind of gets us looking in the right direction. Interesting. It's a very interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's there's many people who I've talked to over the years who who can't really get their minds around the Christian concept of God, but but also when they visit nature, they think, Wow, this is amazing. I can't there's gotta be something here. I don't maybe know what it is, but there's gotta be something here. I've I've also met other people who say yeah, it's something it's called a glacier. Um but you know that <laughs> Well, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I'm saying that there are, there are people who can still go into nature, and that's not, you know, proof of, of anything to, to some people. But for many people, you're absolutely right, and I think that's part of the reason God made beauty, was to, sh- to point us to him, as, as Matt was kind of getting at. I think that um, in creation, in nature, in the presence of natural beauty, we are able to come to a different type of connection with God than we can without that. I think it inspires a deeper type of meditation on creation, as creation. I think it inspires a, a much better understanding of awe. We talked a few weeks ago about one of our biblical values being awe, that God is transcendent and bigger than we can imagine or comprehend, and that, yes, he's close to us, but he's also awesome, I don't mean that like in the 1980s way, but like awesome, inspiring awe. You, you don't quite get that necessarily walking around Rochester the same way that you would at the Grand Canyon, for example. High Falls is pretty nice, and you don't have to go very far to find Letchworth, but when you get out just a little bit, you begin to see things that, that cause you, they sort of give you this little spinal cord adjustment in your soul, if you will, where suddenly something clicks together and you, have a, you understand a concept of God that you couldn't understand before. And I think that's part of why he, why he did it. And I think it also inspires a, a deeper and sometimes more honest type of prayer. I've been on a John Muir kick lately. Um, I don't know if you guys watched the, the PBS Ken Burns National Park stock that was on last month, but really, really great, and the early episodes focused a lot on John Muir, a naturalist um, who really was 
responsible for, for exploring a lot of this stuff and, and inspiring America to make these national parks in many ways. Um, in fact, when you came in, if you noticed on the screen, there was a, a worship meditation that was a quote from John Muir. And here's another one. This will be on the screen, but this is the type of prayer I'm talking about. He says, everybody needs beauty as well as bread, places to play in and pray in, where nature may heal and give strength to body and soul. Now, John Muir's understanding of God is not exactly in line with the Christian understanding of God uh, at many points, but I think he's definitely onto something there, that in the presence of nature, we do find it more possible to connect with God. And so the conclusion that I'd like to draw from all of this is, is the following. Since God made all this beauty, and in some cases apparently for no other reason than just because it's beautiful, and since it can also be so crucial, so integral to our understanding of Him and our relationship with Him and our connection with Him, I think it is our duty as Christians to care for it. Now, I'm about to step onto slightly dangerous ground here because anytime you start talking about environmentalism or ecology, there are assumptions made about politics. Am I right? Broadly speaking, I think this is less true here because I think we have a, a, a better cross-section of American political opinion at Artisan than most evangelical churches do. But at most evangelical churches... There's a fairly strong political conservatism present on all issues. Now, I think that sometimes that results in American Christians following the teachings of a political party rather than the teachings of the Bible, right? Now, your liberal friends are not off the hook because there are plenty of American churches that do the same thing blue instead of red, okay? My point is that neither one of them represents the actual truth of the Bible and what we ought to do as followers of Jesus. And so, even though I'm going to talk a little bit about ecology, I hope that you will give this a listen, even if you are a very politically conservative person, because there comes a time when you need to break with the teachings of your party and go to the teachings of your Lord, if I might be so bold. So there's political barriers, and the other thing is, whenever anybody starts talking about ecology, the assumption is that this is a big, it's a single issue, it's about what? Global warming, right? And of course, when you mention global warming, there's all the people who have all the science that proves it's a farce, and then you have all the people who watched An Inconvenient Truth and can say, no, it's actually true, and then you get this argument, and again, we're not, suddenly we're not talking about any kind of biblical principle, we're talking about political arguments again. And so I'm not going to talk about global warming. Let's assume that there's no such thing. I'm not making that assertion, but for the sake of this discussion, let's leave it behind. And let's leave the political things behind. And I simply want to say to you that as people of the book, people who follow the God who created this beauty, we are called to preserve it and care for it and protect it. And since we're talking about the Highland Park neighborhood this this week, and since it's kind of hard to get our brains around global ecology, let me just give you a silly little example that I was thinking of. Now, Highland Park is literally right around the corner from us. All those lilacs there. Now, somebody told me out there that I'm supposed to say lilac. 
I'm not sure why in Rochester, lilac is the one word where you can actually pronounce A like a British person. <laughs> Everything else in Rochester would be like lilac would be what you're supposed to say. I don't get it, but I'm not going to say lilac and I'm not going to say lilac. I'm from Maine where we say lilac, and that's what I'm going to say. So all those lilacs are literally right around the corner. Let's propose for a second that our G&E went under. There's no, there's no more heating oil or gas, and so we need to heat our homes with wood. And uh, lilac bushes, you may not know, but they are a very efficient fuel source. And so we've decided to clear-cut Highland Park and distribute the, 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 the uh, twigs all around the city for the heating of our homes. Do you think that as people who are Christians, people of the church, people who attend this church, again, right around the corner, that we would have any additional obligation beyond just Joe, secular citizen of Rochester, to put a stop to the horrible clear-cutting of Highland Park? I think we might. Yeah, because it's part of our neighborhood. Because... The beauty of nature, Highland Park included on public land, is something that is equal opportunity. And so it's sort of a justice issue that that people who can't afford to jet set around the world and see other beautiful sites can go to Highland Park and see beauty there. It's part of our city cultural history, the lilacs. It's got its own probably ecosystem there. So if you cut those bushes, the the birds can't nest in there. And then who knows what the food chain... What happens to the food chain there? So there's all these issues. Right around the corner, we have to care about that, as Christians especially. I think the same is true, and maybe it's actually easier for you to grasp this if you grew up like I did, you know, post-environmental understanding. You have a pretty good ecological sensibility probably. But I think that's true around the world as well because nobody's clear-cutting Highland Park, let's be honest. People are clear-cutting rainforests. And there's, to me, like, you can argue all you want about, like I said, global warming or carbon dioxide and and clear-cutting and all those things, but there's something that I think you can't argue with, and that is our level of consumption and how that impacts our environment. And so if I could give you, like, one specific thing to do differently, it would be to more consciously consume I'll give you an example. I was reading in Rolling Stone this past week that there's, there's a place in the Pacific Ocean the size of two states of Texas where the currents are, are kind of swirling and so it's created this enormous swirling pool of garbage. And like if you did a sample, if you took, took a sample of the water out of that, that area, which is two times the size of the state of Texas, there's, you cannot scoop any, any water out of that part of the ocean without getting a percentage of plastic in that ocean. And that plastic comes from somewhere. It comes from Lego bricks that I buy for my son, as an example. <laughs> and so if I'm going to be a responsible consumer, maybe I could get my Legos used. <laughs> Just an idea. Now, does this Lego brick have anything to do with our faith? Is that the most absurd thing you've ever heard a pastor say? Am I a complete and utter hippie? 
maybe, but <laughs> I got the shortest hair of any hippie I ever met. It used to be long when I was in college. Now it's can't go long anymore. But I want to propose to you the really silly idea that a Lego brick actually does have something to do with our faith. And that, the, that just the, the really basic idea of consuming differently will make a difference in our world. Now, you can go and do a lot bigger and better things, too, if you're called to that. But I think as a minimum, you ought to be concerned with how your consumption impacts your world, which I will remind you is made by God, at least partly to be beautiful. And so when we make it less beautiful in our various ways of doing that, we may have to answer for that. Because even though all of creation was described as good, only one created animal was made in the image of God. And that's us. So we bear an additional responsibility. So whether it's locally in Highland Park, again, literally around the neighborhood, right around the corner, or if it's in the most remote location you can imagine, literally on the other side of the globe, I would encourage you to get into nature, to appreciate the beauty of creation, and most of all, to work to care for it in whatever way you can. Let's pray. God, this is a beautiful time of year here in Rochester, and uh, I'm reminded as I drive around and see the leaves changing of the beauty of the created order that you've set up, the life and the death, the new birth, and all of that connects me to you in a way, and so I'm thankful for the way that you provide nature and beauty for us, and uh, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we've read in the Bible that we have dominion over everything and taken that to mean that we can have domination over everything and call us back to a sense of stewardship and dominion that's, that involves care for your creation and maintenance of it so that we and, and future generations can get out there and play and pray in nature, as John Muir said and connect with you in a way that we can't otherwise. Amen. You know, I was thinking this week about the fact that God made these plants just for fun, in some cases made this beautiful stuff, and that these simple little organic things can help us connect to him. And uh, of course the, the conclusion that I came to was that the communion table is very much like that isn't it? Grain and grapes, plants, became bread and wine. The sacraments of our faith, the symbols of Christ's body and blood, the reminders of his sacrifice and death and resurrection and our salvation that's possible because of it, came from these plants. <laughs> these simple little elements of bread and wine. Uh, and so it's really, really cool to me that we, every week, as a response to hearing the word of God, come to the table 
and partake of that. And so as we're singing our last few songs, as we continue to worship together, our communion table is open for any of you who would seek to connect with God in that way with those simple plant derivative elements. (laughs) If you want to connect with God in that way, I would invite you to the table. Uh, and you break off a piece of that bread, remembering Christ's body broken for you. And you can dip it. We have both wine and juice, whichever is more appropriate for you and your family. Uh, remembering Christ's blood shed for you and for the sins of all. Uh, so come to the table as you're ready as we continue to worship. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.